this is your first time joining us, I would invite you to come again and listen to next week's sermon before you decide if <laughs> this is your church home. So a little bit about me. Um, my name is Jason, and I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest, and I am the son of James and Sarah, and they were the local dry cleaner in the community where I grew up. Spent a lot of afternoons after school and some long summer days at the family dry cleaning business. And I'll say that you learn a lot about life when you watch your parents work. My mother is very detail-oriented, and uh, she's, she's very skilled with her hands, so she would handle the alterations. So customers would bring in a piece of clothing that needed to be altered or restored in some way, and so she would uh, assess the clothing, see what needed to be done, and then she would apply her skill with a needle to that clothing. That is what the Proverbs is talking about when it talks about wisdom. The word for wisdom means skill or expertise. And so the way that my mother would approach a piece of clothing is the way that you and I would approach life, relationships, parenting, romance. If you're the mayor of a small metro Atlanta city, governance might need wisdom for that. Wisdom means skill for godly living. So instead of uh, applying skill with a needle, we apply skill for godly living. There's a, there's a problem. The word for wisdom outside of the context of the Proverbs is morally neutral. And we live in a world that reflects that. People are skilled, but it's not always for godly living. Some people are skilled at understanding the way uh, people think and act. Some people are skilled at gaining the trust of others. But if they use that trust to take advantage of others, then who can you trust? Not Pastor Jimmy Agin, at least the person who says he's Pastor Jimmy Agin, and he sends you an email asking you to urgently buy him some gift cards. That's, that's called a, a scam. But people understand that we, we trust our pastors, and they take advantage of that. What about the car mechanic who tells you that you need a new key, and it's going to cost $300 to calibrate that to your car, when really all you need is a $3 battery? And what about your friend who is welcoming, a great listener, asks great questions, is interested in your life, but then tells your secrets to other people. What kind of car mechanic are you seeking? Someone who is skilled with cars, but is also honest. What kind of friend are you seeking? Someone who's a good listener, probably, but someone who will keep your confidence. And what kind of pastor do you want? Someone who will follow up and tell you where to drop off the gift cards. 
I'm still waiting, Jimmy. <laughs> Each of us desires to interact with the type of person who is presented as wise in the Proverbs. And this person is also described as righteous. A wise person is a righteous person. A foolish person is described as a wicked person. We want to live in a world with people who are skilled for godly living, who are skilled in promoting the good of our relationships, the good of our vehicles, the good of our communities. How do we find that? And how do we become people like that? We'll find the answer this morning as we explore the Proverbs call to three words, righteousness, justice, and equity. Suzanne, will you read for us? The scripture reading is from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge, and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as I was walking around the neighborhood this morning, I noticed some of the neighbors have left their Christmas lights up. But it's the middle of January, so they don't bother to plug them in anymore. I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit that you would plug in the lights, that we may see Jesus magnified, exalted, and glorified through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a student, when two of your friends would be spending a lot of time together, like you would see them in the dining hall, you would see them studying in the library, you know, all of your friends would want to check out this new boba shop on the weekend, and they would be like, no, I don't, I don't really like that stuff. You guys go ahead. And then the next weekend you see the two of them in there together. At that point, your more eager friend would approach one of them and say, you know, I've seen you and -and so-and-so spending a lot of time together. Have you guys had a DTR? What's a DTR? Oh, you don't know what a DTR is. Well, let me explain. It is where you sit down, you have a serious conversation, to define the relationship. I mean, don't you want to know where you stand in your relationship? Don't you want to know if you're a couple? I want to know. Everyone wants to know. Okay, so we're not going to have a DTR right now, 
But we are going to define some words that we see in the Proverbs. I want us to be all on the same page so we're understanding everything together. We're going to start with ADTR. We're going to define the righteousness. Righteousness. In the Proverbs, righteousness means disadvantaging yourself to advantage the community. Disadvantaging yourself to advantage the community. Wickedness is the opposite. Disadvantaging the community to advantage yourself. Righteousness has to do with a type of character that establishes the right order that God has created for our good. So if you think of the Nebel family, for the family and for Emma to thrive, the parents need to disadvantage themselves to advantage the family. Mom and dad are going to have to orient their entire lives, their finances, their time, their sleep, to help this little human being to survive and to thrive. And you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. The state believes that. So depending on the degree to which you don't disadvantage yourself for your child, the state might call that neglect or even abuse and say that you can't be a parent. Parents are meant to disadvantage themselves for the good of the family. And the people of God are meant to disadvantage themselves for the good of the community. Righteousness establishes the right order that God has created for our good. Justice. Justice is a restoration of that right order when it has been disturbed. In 1994, the United Nations asked a young lawyer named Gary Haugen to lead an investigation into the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mercedes-Benz Stadium downtown. It's where the Atlanta United play their soccer games. When uh, Lionel Messi, who's arguably the greatest soccer player of this generation, was supposed to come to play the Atlanta United Over 71,000 fans bought tickets to watch him play and then be disappointed when he didn't show up. Now imagine more than 11 Mercedes-Benz stadiums full of fans slaughtered to death in a month and a half, mostly with rudimentary weapons like a machete. That was the Rwandan genocide. 800,000 people were slaughtered in the first six weeks of the genocide. The right order that God had created for our good was disturbed. And as Gary Haugen investigated 100 mass grave sites, including churches where people thought they could run to for refuge, but were deeply mistaken, I think it's safe to say that Gary Haugen was disturbed by what he saw. You ever been disturbed in that way? Gary Haugen was disturbed by how preventable a genocide like that could be if everyday acts of violence could be held accountable. And we're not even talking about the big stuff. We're talking about everyday acts of violence, meaning a justice system could functionally protect vulnerable people especially the poor, from violence 
and hold perpetrators accountable. A few years later, Haugen started an organization to help justice systems around the world hold perpetrators accountable for their actions and also to find healing and restoration for those who have been wronged. It's actually a, a good picture of biblical justice. Pastor Tim Keller says that biblical justice is both retributive and restorative, meaning a restoration of the right order that God has created involves both accountability and healing, a restoration of God's right order for our good. Equity. Equity in a literal sense means geometrically straight, so like a straight line. In an ethical sense, it means staying within the bounds of a morally fixed order. Another way to say that might be uprightness. As Christians, we believe God has created boundaries for our good and the good of the world. Kind of like the way a parent structures boundaries for the good of their children. And this might not be popular, or you may not agree, uh, but the commentator uses the example of sex within marriage to describe equity. As Christians, we believe there is great freedom when sex is fully enjoyed within the bounds of marriage, and there's great harm when it is not. If we go to verse 1, it says that these are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. What does Solomon know about equity? Solomon is the son of David, and who else? He's the son of Bathsheba. I don't know if you know that story, but David, the king of Israel, was known as a man after God's own heart. And as king, he was supposed to represent the character of God to God's people and to the world. And God had made a covenant with David, promising an everlasting kingdom in which David and by extension God's people would reflect his righteousness, justice, and equity for the good of the entire world in the big things and in the little things. But one day David saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba who was married to another man, and he went outside the bounds of the right order that God had created. He broke a covenant, and when he found out she was pregnant, he tried to cover up his mess. You ever tried to cover up your own mess? David was not successful. David, by this time, was experienced in battle. He was a warrior king. And so he used his skill and knowledge of warfare to give instructions for Bathsheba's husband to go to the front lines of battle and withdraw the rest of the troops. David disadvantaged others to advantage himself, covered up his own mess. The right order that God had created for the good of David and his kingdom was disturbed, and literal death and destruction came as a result to his own family, to the kingdom, before that right order could be restored. 
Thankfully, David was confronted and he repented. But the consequences of his decisions were still devastating. What could restore the destruction that David caused by his lack of righteousness, by his lack of equity? His sons followed his example, using their strength and manipulating the trust of others for their own advantage. And this time, David failed in another way, maybe due to his lack of moral clarity or because of his shame from what he had done. He failed to hold his own children accountable when they disadvantaged others. And then he failed to seek restoration for his own daughter when she was shamed and violated. David's inability to seek justice caused more death and destruction in his family and kingdom as others took justice into their own hands in the wrong way. So who needs wisdom? Who needs to grow in righteousness, in justice and equity? The passage that we've read, it indicates all of us, the simple, the youth, and even the wise. New Christian, young Christian, mature Christian, professional Christian, even a man after God's own heart needs to grow in these ways. What about you? Maybe you're not as bad as David, but have you ever used your skill, your strength, your experience, or the trust of others for your own advantage? When you gossip about someone, is that for that person's advantage or your own? Have you ever thrown someone else under the bus to cover up your mess? Or have you ever failed to seek restoration for those who have been disadvantaged or those that you have wronged? In high school, there were times when I was willing to tear others down in an attempt to fit in. Instead of helping others to fit in, I was concerned about being accepted myself at the expense of others. And it's actually not that different as an adult. Whether you're in middle school or grad school or whether you're a Presbyterian elder, a member of the Presbytery, and trying to fit in at the expense of others, that, tempta- that temptation is still available to all of us. And maybe you're not like me. Instead of wronging others, maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you've been wronged by someone like me, by your family, or by the church. Maybe you've been wronged by someone like David, who is supposed to represent the goodness of God in your life. If that is you, I am sorry. I am I'm very sorry, because that's not the way that it's supposed to be. What could restore you from the wrongs that have been done to you? What would it look like to hold me accountable for what I've done to others? Should others cut me down the way that I've done to them? 
And what would restoration look like? I've, I've thought about it, and it's a lot harder to restore someone else's reputation than it is to tear it down. What would it take, and what would justice look like? The reality is that each of us has disturbed the right order that God has created for our good. And justice, accountability is required. And the reality is that each of us has been disadvantaged. We have been wronged by others, and we long for justice. We long for restoration and healing. Where will we get both accountability and healing? If we go back to verse 1, Solomon, son of David, after all the heartache David caused in his lust for Bathsheba, any child of that relationship would have been a reminder of David's shame. He could have been called the shame of Israel. But instead, Westminster Seminary professor Edmund Clowney explains that Solomon's name comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Solomon was a prince of peace who would reign over Israel with a flourishing kingdom, and the whole world would hear of his wisdom. And where would this wisdom come from? Verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Chapter 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And by extension, I'll say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of righteousness, of justice, of equity. So if you were Solomon, son of David, son of Bathsheba, the shame of Israel, would you fear a Lord like this? The Lord who is the covenant God of Israel, who promised David an everlasting kingdom and still kept his covenant, that one of his descendants would lead his people in bringing righteousness, justice, and equity to the world. Solomon was a descendant, a son of David, who did a decent job at first, but he later forgot the fear of the Lord. Israel needed someone greater than Solomon. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of David. He is referred to as one greater than Solomon. Solomon was a prince of peace, but Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is the promised descendant of David, who will lead God's people in bringing righteousness, justice, and equity to the world. And throughout the New Testament, you will see this rhythm of righteousness, justice, and equity defined in Jesus Christ. There are many examples in the New Testament, but we only have time for one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know if you hear the equity. He knew no sin. Jesus never went outside the bounds of the right order that God had created. Jesus defines equity. And do you hear the the righteousness? He disadvantaged himself. He was made to be sin when he knew no sin. To advantage others for our sake, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus defines righteousness. And do you hear the justice? I asked you earlier, what would it take to seek justice, accountability for everything that we've done wrong, and healing for the wrongs that have been done to us? He was made to be sin. On the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of justice for everything that you have ever done wrong. He was held accountable for your wickedness. And through his resurrection, he brought restoration and healing. He conquered death that we might become the righteousness of God. Would you fear a Lord like that? When you should be known by your shame of what you have been what of what you have done to others? Would you fear a Lord like that when you should be known by your shame, by what others have done to you? You are known as the righteousness of God. And when I was a, a kid, I always wondered where I stood with God. Do I pray enough? to be loved by God? Do I do enough to be loved by God? If you ever wonder where you stand in relation to God, Jesus defines the relationship. If you feel guilty or ashamed of who you are, Jesus defines who you are. Jesus knew only righteousness, but he was made to be your wickedness so that you might become the righteousness of God. You are defined by Jesus' righteousness. So what kind of car mechanic are you seeking? Probably someone defined by this kind of equity. And what kind of friend are you seeking? Probably someone who is defined by this kind of righteousness. What kind of leader are you seeking? Probably someone who promotes both accountability and healing in your community. What are, what are you seeking? What kind of wisdom are you seeking? Maybe a, a better question is, who are you seeking? I think you're seeking the kind of wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord. And I invite you to begin by putting your faith in this Lord, Jesus. He is the promised king who will bring righteousness, justice, and equity to the world. 
Trust him to establish the right order that God has created for the good of your family, the good of your community, and the good of the world. And if you belong to him, follow his lead in bringing restoration. Maybe not always with a needle, but to bring restoration with skill for godly living in your relationships, in your families, and in your communities. And I know what you're thinking. Jason, that was not a sermon. It was a vocabulary lesson. And if you recently took the SATs, or you're studying for the SATs, you don't want to learn any more vocabulary words that you will never use in a real sentence. Jimmy is going to lead us in the next part, and that is for you, the Lord's Supper. If you remember nothing that we talked about this morning, look to the Lord's Supper. God is a father who loves his children, and so he helps us to understand and remember I don't know if you have a younger sibling in your house or you're learning to read yourself, but you might have a, a picture dictionary where the word, if it's a word, you know, maybe cat, the definition is a, a picture of a cat. We have a, a visible definition, a picture dictionary definition of righteousness, justice, and equity. The Passover lamb was supposed to be without blemish. And Jesus is described as a lamb without spot or blemish. Equity. His body was broken and his blood was shed. Accountability. Justice. And it was broken and shed for, for you. It was poured out for many. He was... Ad- He was disadvantaged to advantage you and to advantage many. Righteousness. It was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, restoration, and healing. As Jimmy slowly makes his way up, we're going to end our time uh, with prayer. So please join me in prayer. Lord, we Thank you for your righteousness, and we look to you, our righteousness. Remind us again that we have become your righteousness. May our faith be strengthened in you. In Jesus' name, amen.